What would you do in order to live the life you feel you deserve? Would you work for it? Would you steal? What you're about to hear is a story of a woman that kind of does both. But where does it end? Welcome to Most Fashionable Crime, a fashion-related true crime podcast. I'm your host, Taryn, and in this episode, I will be telling you the story about the legendary Doris Payne. To prepare for this episode, I read Diamond Doors, the true story of the world's most notorious jewelry thief, which was written by none other than Doris Payne herself and co-authored by Zelda Lockhart, who, according to her website, is an award-winning author of three novels. Besides an article to see what Miss Payne was up to most recently, a good amount of my information came from this book. I rented the book from my local library, so be sure to support yours too or purchase the book for all the details of her story. I highly recommend this book because Doris has led a lot of life. I will put links to purchase in the notes. I first learned about Miss Payne a few years ago. She was gaining a lot of traction in the news because of her six decades of stealing fine jewelry. I quickly learned that Doris Payne was a professional of sorts, and I wondered why she got into it and how she was able to do it for so long, especially as a black woman. A lot of it was about the look, the flair, and the confidence. Without that, in my opinion, Miss Payne would not have been successful and likely would have ended up in prison before the end of her first year as a career criminal. I was really intrigued by her story, not so that I can swing it myself, but because her life fascinated me. I wanted to focus on some of the fashion in this story, obviously because as a fashionista or lady of fashion, Doris remembers and recalls events from her life down to what she was wearing and also what other people were wearing. What I noticed while reading the book is that it revolves around fashion and style. It opens with her getting dressed to set out and begin this career of hers. At 25, wearing a skirt suit accompanied by a white blouse and white gloves, Doris was ready to go. And doesn't green seem like the perfect color choice? So let me tell you about Doris so I can paint the picture. Doris is a petite black woman with a lighter complexion. She wears her hair short, whether it's a bob or a shortcut. According to her, her looks rival that of Dorothy Dandridge. Now I'm going to talk more about Doris's upbringing. This is crucial to understanding why she does what she did, or perhaps still does. Her father was a black man named Dave Payne, and her mother was a Native American woman of the Cherokee tribe, as Doris claimed in the book. Her mother's name was Clemmie Payne, but she was born Clemmie Gilbert in Iowa. I checked census records on Ancestries.com, and her mother was actually listed as in for Negro, Black, or African American in current terms. I even checked the records of Clemmie's parents and sisters, and they all came up as Black. Down her line, there was a grandfather listed as mulatto. I wasn't sure if her mother was a mixed ethnicity or if that was just something census takers made an error or simply without care. She could have had native ancestry or it could have been one of those we have Cherokee in our blood type of situations. Keep that in mind as we'll come back to this later. Doris is the second youngest of six children altogether. Her siblings, aside from one sister, don't play as much of a role in her story as her parents do. Doris was born on October 10, 1930 in Slap Fork, West Virginia. She was also raised there. If you're unfamiliar with Slap Fork, it's okay because I am as well. According to good old Wikipedia, Slap Fork is an unincorporated community and as of 2000, it had 202 people, 199 of them white. On the same Wikipedia page, there are three notable people listed and all of them are black and all are born in the 1930s. Doris, of course, is listed. She is an icon of sorts. There's also Earl Francis, who is a professional baseball player that made his debut in 1960 with the Pittsburgh Pirates. Another person that hails from there, I believe, 
most of us are familiar with is the Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Bill Withers. In the book, Doris recounts a funny story about her relationship with his high old grandfather. If you Google Slap Fork, a lot of black and white images come up. It was a coal mining town, so you can say it wasn't suitable for the life Doris wanted to live. Continuing with her early life, Doris, also known as Dink as she was affectionately known by her family, used to cut paper dolls out of fashion photos from Town & Country, Harper's Bazaar, and folk magazines her mother would purchase from Mr. Benjamin's store. Her mother used those magazines during her work at a Catholic monastery to teach Doris and her sister how to carry themselves and how to care for a home. Those same magazines are what Doris would use to research for her future job. Doris's father was very abusive towards her mother. At some point, her mother, Clemmy, left the family to live with her mother in North Carolina and eventually went to New York City and worked as a seamstress for sex. Clemmy's skills would pay off for Doris later on. This experience of seeing her mother abused greatly contributed to how Doris would go about adulthood and future relationships. What I gather from my readings is that this is around the time Doris cultivates her love for the finer things as well as her distaste for men. A lot of what is out there about Doris does not show the relationship that she had with her mother and how a lot of it is the reason why she decided to do what she did. The basis of Doris's thievery doesn't take from her being fast, armed, or anything of an aggressive or physical nature. It stems from her utilizing the odd combination of being admired and forgotten. In eighth grade, Doris first learned of her ability to become invisible at Mr. Benjamin's store. As previously stated, this is the store where Doris and her mother would get their magazines. The invisibility cloak is really just racism and discrimination. She went to the store to pay the family's bill and look at watches. Her mother promised her a watch if she won the top prize at school due to her having the best grades. According to Doris, some redneck flounced into the store while she had an armful of watches on. Bill Benjamin, the owner of the store, rushed to snatch them off her. Bill switched up on her like that. As she was walking towards the door, she decided to embarrass him in front of his red company and tell him that he forgot a watch. She went home and tore down the magazine clippings. After this incident, I guess she realized that she didn't need to look up to or admire them because they weren't better than her and she writes that in the book. At 16 years old, two years after Watchgate at Mr. Benjamin's, she and a friend, Lil, spent their Saturdays in Cleveland. She would do the same game, only this time with attention and while dressed in her finest church clothes. Their Sunday best consisted of white gloves for both girls, a white collared yellow chiffon dress for Doris, and a blue and white gingham dress for Lil, with a fresh hair press for both. Doris arrived with a goal to make the store clerks forget about the jewelry she was trying on. Here, Doris established her art of storytelling, and part of that story was through how she dressed. She probably would have made an excellent costume designer. She concocted the story about being a college student whose dad would be coming in the next day to purchase the watch for her. Lil had no parts in this. She was just there to witness and watch Doris show off, as Doris put it. Doris was able to make off with the watch, but she returned it. This time. Doris knew she had to tap into the persona of being the black elite and the concept of exceptionalism in order to continue this game. Eventually, Doris's mother left her husband and they moved along with Doris's younger brother to Cleveland, where her mom took a job as a seamstress. In Cleveland, Doris became pregnant and ended up living in a manor for unwed black women, which hit her up with a job at Euclid Manor Nursing Home. She used her money to enhance her wardrobe and buy patterns for her mom to make clothes from once the baby dropped. Doris was waiting on her snapback before it was even called a snapback. She gave birth to a son named Ronald, named after his father, and four years later birthed a daughter named Rhonda. Doris never claimed to be in a serious relationship with her children's father. Her not wanting to be in a committed relationship, yet naming her children after this man is just humorous to me. I don't know if it was some sort of laziness or just a thing a lot of people were doing at this time. 
Doris was now ready to join the big leads. She, along with a white co-worker, went down to a now-defunct department store where Doris played the role of nurse and her co-worker played the role of an older, unhealthy customer. Doris's mother's experience as a seamstress came in super handy. Not only did she go into unknowingly alter and make clothes for her con daughter, Doris was able to dress her co-worker in one of her mom's creations to really sell the roles they were going for. They made off with a $1,500 wedding set, which would be worth $14,000 today, according to the book. All the inflated prices and all the other pricing in this episode comes from the book. She gave her co-worker $100, and Doris spent another $100 on a hat, pair of shoes to match a green and mauve handbag she also bought. What a deal. She bought a wedding set with the leftover money from a pawn shop. Doris was honing in on her look. <laughs> Now a solo criminal, her net still was out of Pittsburgh. She made off with a $20,000 ring that would be worth $187,000 presently. She was so shook, she slept in the bathroom of a Greyhound station on some pursuit of happiness shit, wrinkling the green suit I mentioned earlier that her mother made for her. She ran out of money, and the next day, she went into a store and sold it to the manager of the store, making off with $7,000, which would be worth $65,000 today, using $10 to take a cab back to Cleveland. With the money left over, she went and bought her family a house. Honestly, what Doris described as her reason for jumping into the full-time job as a jewelry thief reminded me of this clip from an interview JT of the City Girls did for the City Girls documentary, Point Blank Period, presented by Quality Control and Mass Appeal, which I will play now. Man, this chance is where we from. It's so motherfucking slim. It's like, what could you do? I had always had a job. Every two weeks, $500, $600. Like, what am I going to do with it? Like, they need to pay people more. And it was like, the rush for scamming was, you gonna get all that stuff that you wanted in a, in a bad way, but you was gonna get it. That was the whole thing. I never wanted to be a regular person. As you can see, especially during this time period, the 1960s, 1950s, Doris would not be able to achieve the type of life she wanted to live without really having talent. So I mean that in a sense of Doris could sing, maybe she could achieve it. If she could add, maybe she could achieve it. But she wanted to live a glamorous life, but she probably would have been working as a seamstress like her mother, working at the manor, being a housekeeper, a nanny of the sort. And that was just not it for her. She just felt like she deserved to have this life of luxury too. And she made it away for herself by stealing. After getting caught and getting out of an arrest and other steals from downtown Cleveland stores, Doris knew it was time to level up. This is when she was introduced to Babe. According to the book, his real name is Harold Bromfield, and he is an Israeli Jewish man. Now, this is an interesting character. Doris says that this was a hunk of a man that resembled Russell Crowe. Big yikes. She eventually began dating him in 1967, but he was married to a woman named Myra. Apparently, they all had an understanding and entanglement, if you will. Census records that I found shows that his father was born in Austria and his mother in Cleveland. His father worked as a bartender, so I'm sure he's familiar with similar but not the same humble beginnings like Doris. To show off her talents to him, Doris and Babe went to Philadelphia. She wore a green trench coat over a brown suit, and of course she was wearing her jewelry. Green seems to be a favorite color of hers to wear, and I can't help but think of the obvious connotations of the color being associated with money, but also greed. Babe wore a tailored gray suit. The way the outfits were described shows me that they were nicely dressed but didn't want to be too gaudy or loud to the point where they drew too much attention. The right combination of not looking out of place. Doris got away with the jewel initially, but the police issued to be on the lookout for this criminal interracial couple. Them being an interracial couple probably was a huge reason they got caught. Technically, they weren't dating at the time, but 
Loving versus Virginia would not be decided until the following year. I will read you the wanted poster regarding them. The poster reads, Wednesday, November 30th, 1966, about 11.45 a.m. inside room 942, Fidelity Philadelphia Trust Building, 123 South Broad Street, Harold Bromfield and Doris Payne examined several trays of diamond rings and requested to see more expensive rings. When the jeweler returned, the couple left and two rings were missing. Bronfield represented himself as the widowed Payne's attorney. She was interested in investing a large sum of money that she had inherited in the purchase of valuable rings. Important! Immediately report any information, including name, address, physical description, and license number. Information will be confidential. This posting describes how Doris was able to pull out the crimes, but yet she was able to continue on for essentially, like, to this day. <laughs> If you missed it, Doris would ask to look at jewelry and have the jeweler bring out one tray or a few trays, but not too many because there were guidelines to this. She would move the pieces of jewelry around her wrist, fingers, and hands and in and out of the trays while having a conversation with the jeweler. The jeweler would get comfortable and become too relaxed and agree to bring out more jewelry. Once the jeweler left to get more pieces, this is when Doris would leave with one of the pieces of jewelry. Sometimes she was still right in front of their faces and leave the store without them noticing at all. However, this expedition was a failure, but because of that, Doris gained access to base political and professional connections, which would be used throughout part of her career to her benefit. She learned a lot from Babe about how to get out of things as a criminal. Doris didn't have a clean cut when it came to stealing. Other people got mistakenly involved in her crimes as well. In late 1965, Marguerite Wendell Chapman, the ex-wife of Willie Mays of the San Francisco Giants, was falsely accused and arrested of stealing a $4,000 ring. She also got her dear friend Shirley, a salesperson at a local department store, arrested when they mistook her for Doris. In the book, Doris mentions how she felt bad about women that looked like her getting caught up in her dealings. Interestingly enough, Doris also had connections to the Cleveland Mafia by way of Babe. Babe worked somewhat as a broker for Doris. He had more leeway with the buyers as a white man. With that, he got her involved with the Leonardo brothers and they ended up being some of her most dedicated buyers. Following the 1966 race riots, Doris spent more time with her people. Her friend Shirley introduced her to a man from Tennessee named Kenneth Tolliver. He was a promoter and apparently he resembled Don King. Doris took note of his jewelry at their first meeting, a PJ watch and an emerald cut pinky ring. Of course, Babe grew jealous of this and Doris, seeing as she didn't want to have a committed relationship to any man, began to distance herself from Babe because she just felt he was being a little bit too controlling. She would come to regret distancing herself from him a bit. Sadly for Doris, Babe passed away after complications from getting a tummy tuck, which Doris said was to get him back into the shape he was when they first met to rekindle their relationship. After Babe's passing, Doris decided to take her talents to Europe. She didn't go immediately in 1968. She waited. She did a lot of what creatives do, which is research. She expanded her talents and consumed a new role. In the U.S., Doris assumed everyone thought she was a celebrity, and that didn't change in Europe. She went to Monte Carlo, Monaco in 1974. She chose Europe because it was the first stop on the blood diamond circuit, as she justified it to herself. Premier jeweler of the world at this point in time. Dressed in a cream linen suit from Sats and Matching Hills, Doris looked the part of a black socialite on vacation. She noticed she was being followed by a white American man. 
this man turned out to be the creepy co-founder of Rolling Stone magazine, Jan Winner. He bought her to Cartier. In the book, she describes him as a hippie and poorly dressed. I'm sure Doris was disgusted by him. Doris stole a 10.5 carat round diamond ring, $550,000 at the time and $2.5 million today. She got caught. Jan Winner is the one who actually snitched on her. It was mainly to cover his own ass, but honestly, between the two, who would they believe? You tell me. In a clip I saw from her documentary, The Life and Crimes of Doris Payne, she mentions how she didn't change clothes and that insisted in her getting caught. She's also a black woman in a predominantly white area. I thought about what if she worked with someone that would be less noticeable and harder to remember, similar to how she did with her coworker at the nursing home. Then I quickly realized if she did, whoever would seem like a canary. This encounter, this still is her most notorious crime and is also the last one I will be going into great detail in this episode. Let's get into where Doris went wrong. For one, she says she should not have stolen with only one other person in the store. Two, she should have had a getaway that didn't require any wait time, which also means having all of your shit together beforehand. She successfully was able to hide the ring while being strip searched, and because they couldn't locate the stolen jewels, she was held in a holding place for nine months before she faked an intestinal issue and escaped to Paris by way of a Nigerian man with a sports car. This would not be the last time she was able to get away with the help of a nice Nigerian man. She got back to the U.S. with the help of Kenan's daughter, Linda, who actually flew to Europe to help Doris. This is where Doris used the alias Thelma Creighton Wright. According to an article on History.com, she has 32 aliases and 9 passports. This is also when we come back to Doris being color-struck. The direct quote from the book is, For a long time, jewelers didn't even know what race I was because of my light skin. End quote. Did light skin privilege and pretty privilege play a role in her success? Absolutely. Especially when this is the height of Lena Horne and Dorothy Dandridge. I mentioned earlier I would come back to this later, but I believe this plays a part in why she had the confidence to go into these spaces and play into the role. At the age of 44 in September 1975, Doris went to London, Paris, and Rome and had a pretty successful shopping trip. A model in a suit in London to Garrod & Company, a beige dress with short sleeves with slit pockets to Paris to Van Cleef and Arpels, this was her Audrey Hepburn look. It was also in Paris where Doris believed she was mistaken for the late and lovely Diane Carroll. A simple foreign-fitting dress in Rome to Bulgaria to end the European tour with rings worn over her gloves. She left Rome to Syria and eventually got to Iran before leaving for New York and eventually getting back to Cleveland. Doris's downfall is a result of her anger with her mother wanting her to stop stealing, lay low, and just lead a regular regular life. Of course, Doris heads to Europe, but without a plan. She ended up in Zurich, Switzerland. After changing the hotel into a Diane von Furstenberg, a redhead scarf, and a black crocodile bat from Christian Dior. It's noted in the book that these are the colors of the Pan-African flag. She went out and had a few drinks and ended up at Rolette's. So not only was she drunk, but she was also sleep deprived because she had been going since she stepped off the plane. She lost track of time and doesn't recall what happened because she made a horrible mistake. <laughs> At the age of 50, Doris was down bad. She was losing her touch. For what? She ended up clubbing in Davos with another Nigerian driver and got snatched up by the police while on the floor cutting a rug. They put her on a train to go back to Zurich, but apparently they did not cuff her or search her at all. The real kicker is her ass escaped from the train by jumping off. With the help of Kenneth's daughter, Linda, and another Nigerian man, Doris or Thelma, as she used on the password again, was able to flee. If Monte Carlo was the climax of Doris's story, Zurich was definitely the denouncement. When she got back to the U.S., she learned that her mother had been getting visits from an FBI agent. Doris decided it was time to kind of take a step back. 
Doris moved to Chicago with her friend Shirley, and they made money scraping cocaine from plastic bags. After Doris's mother lost her battle with lung cancer, she got back into stealing. She did a trip to Tokyo and ended up in California and so on. I'm going to jump forward to her most recent steals that brought her back into the spotlight. Miss Doris Payne was arrested for stealing in the Deep South. Jonathan McBadden for the Charlotte Observer refers to her as the golden girl of crime. According to this news site, on July 11, 2015, it's believed she stole a diamond-studded platinum ring from David Yerman in South Park Mall. And according to Greg Suskin in an article for WSOCTV.com, that ring retailed at $33,000. The following year, in her new home of Atlanta, Georgia, Bo Emerson of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution writes that she stole a $2,000 necklace from Von Maher in Perimeter Mall. Then the next year, she stole $86 worth of merchandise from Walmart. Doris did do some time in prison, but typically she would get out early. Because of her intriguing story and increasing age, people attempted to steal her story from her. Ultimately, Doris was able to gain control of her narrative, just as she did throughout the course of her life, which is why we got this book, documentary, and why I am able to do this podcast episode. To answer the question I asked earlier of where does it end, it doesn't. This is Doris's story in her words, and we don't know what's true or what isn't true. I mentioned some things throughout the episode that I think dwell in the land of make-believe, but who knew a switch of the hands could result in a six-decade career of stealing? Successfully at that. Thank you for listening to this very first episode of hopefully what is to become one of your favorite podcasts. Make sure to follow on Instagram and Facebook at Most Fashionable Crime and on Twitter at Most Fashionable. Also subscribe to the Most Fashionable Crime YouTube and sign up for the newsletter linked below. In next week's episode, I will be covering the bling ring. Thank you again. In case you're wondering, this podcast was written, produced, and edited by me, Taryn, and all the music you hear in this episode is from Epidemic Sound.